0: This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figuero.
1: Support this podcast by joining the Independent Progressive Media Revolution
0: today at HumanistReport.com. Welcome to the Humanist Report. My name is Mike Figueroa, and this is the eighty-sixth episode of the program. Today is March 17th. And before we get started, I want to thank these people for joining the Independent Progressive Media Revolution. Today we have Robert Kuzma. Richard G. Pablo Zambrano, Robert Foster, Carl Lindström, Kenneth Che, Carlos Ansalmo, Josh, and William Mayo. So all of these people decided to support the show either by becoming Patreon patrons, signing up to be members on HumanistReport.com, or by submitting a donation to us via PayPal. So if you'd also like to support the program, you could visit the links down below in the description box. So on today's episode. First, I'll talk about Bernie Sanders' town hall in West Virginia and the implications of his appearance, Cory Booker's response to Bernie Sanders' criticism, and Bernie Sanders' criticism of Democrats. I'll also discuss Joe Manchin's plan to fix Obamacare, Rachel Maddow's epic fail, Green Party candidates that are up-and-comers, and I'll discuss how Trump's healthcare bill is imploding before our very eyes, as well as his relationship with criminal banks and how that's going to impact the economy. I'll also talk about his unusually cruel federal budget, and I'll give you an update on Jeff Sessions' war on marijuana. I'll talk about tantrums that Republicans have been throwing at public forums. And finally, I'll address why Democrats are now less popular than Trump and the Republicans. So all of these topics will be discussed in today's episode. I'll also get to a voicemail towards the end of the show. Uh, So let's go ahead and jump right in. Hopefully you guys enjoy the program. West Virginia is a state that went overwhelmingly to Donald Trump in this last election. He won by a 42-point margin, and even back in 2012, Mitt Romney beat Obama by a 27-point margin of victory. So to simply just say that this state is conservative is an understatement. This is a deep red state. Now, when I tell you something like this, if you're a Democratic consultant, you just automatically assume that this state is unwinnable. It's part of the reason why even Democrat officials from this state, like Joe, mansion pretend to be republicans because they just assume that everyone from this state is ideologically right-wing they're going to agree more with right-wing economic philosophers but bernie sanders recently stated that he doesn't necessarily buy into this red state blue state dichotomy
1: i think essentially and why i really dislike this red state blue state business is that my personal uh, uh, record and what I believe to be the case, is if you talk common sense to people, if you ask people, yeah. uh, do you think your kids should be going to tuition-free public colleges and universities? You know what people will say, oh, one, yeah, I do think so. Do you think we should give tax breaks to billionaires and people will say you're out of your mind. You're
0: crazy. Now, this may sound counterintuitive because if you live in a red state, why would you buy into the economic philosophies of a social democrat who believes in bigger government when you simply believe in smaller government? But I mean, at the end of the day, Bernie Sanders is proving that these ideological disagreements don't disprove the fact that we all just want the same thing, opportunities, education, but we just have a different belief as to how we can make these things come to fruition. Now, Bernie Sanders is starting to really prove that this red-blue state dichotomy may be false because by just going to these states and talking to people and explaining to them how Republicans and Democrats have been screwing them over, well, they're going to be receptive to this message. Now, Bernie Sanders proved this during a town hall in McDowell County, West Virginia, and he was in a room full of Trump supporters and they were actually really inclined to agree with Bernie Sanders and they applauded him on a number of points. So, with this next clip, I'm going to show you Bernie Sanders was explaining to them how the Trump healthcare proposal would screw them over, and they were very receptive to his message. I
1: happen to believe that healthcare is a right, and we should move toward a Medicare for all. Mm-hmm. It is no small thing that as a result of Obamacare, 20 million more Americans got healthcare, mm-hmm. and many of them never in their lives had health care and go to a doctor when they needed to go or go to a hospital without worried about going bankrupt. So that's a big deal. Now in West Virginia, ironically, you know, because Trump won this state you know by a landslide, you are looking if the Affordable Care Act, if Obamacare is repealed, we are looking at hundreds of thousands of people who got Medicaid extension, losing that. And how many of those folks will die? How many of those folks will lose the opioid treatment that they now have? It is a lot. I don't know exactly, but it is a whole lot. But what really bothers me is that when you look at the Republican bill, it should not be seen as a health care bill because throwing millions of people off of health care is not health care legislation. What it should be seen as is a huge tax break for the wealthiest people in this country. And at a time, At a time when we have a massive level of income and wealth inequality, where the rich are getting much richer, while the middle class shrinks, this legislation would provide, over a 10-year period, $275 billion in tax breaks to the top percent. So when people tell you, oh, we don't have enough money to invest in McDowell County or rebuild our infrastructure right. nationally, but we do have $275 billion to give to the top 2%, who are already doing phenomenally well, when they tell you they don't have the money,
0: don't believe them. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what he did there was he broke it down in the simplest terms possible. He explained to you how this healthcare proposal is not really a healthcare bill. It's going to throw people off of healthcare and facilitate another tax grab for the for the rich. So, this isn't a healthcare bill that would benefit anyone in West Virginia. And they applauded him when he talked about this healthcare proposal. Now, part of... This whole thing that Bernie Sanders does where he flips Trump supporters, it's not just about talking to them. It's also about listening to them. Karen McDowell, what happened to the coal industry? It looked
2: pretty bad because that's where most of the income for a lot of men that work in this county comes from is coal mining. And if you're not mining coal, you're doing a secondary job that doesn't pay nowhere near as much. And you can't support your family. You can't take care of what you have to take care of. So I'm just I'm happy to be back to work underground in the mines. Were you working in mines before? Yeah, I've been underground for 10 years and, and they then got laid off. Had to take a secondary job. It doesn't pay, doesn't have hospitalization or nothing. Now I have all that again. And I just hope that it lasts so I can take care of me and my family. And a lot of coal miners say they love it. I do. But it, we do it for the money. We do it for the hospitalization. We do it for what it gives us, not because it's a glamorous job or anything like that. It's for the money. That's why we do it. Would you do something, if there were jobs here in McDowell County that paid what coal mining paid, gave the benefits coal mining paid, would people take those jobs? Absolutely.
0: So I think that this guy's story should resonate with everyone. We all want the same thing. I don't care if you're liberal, progressive, Democrat, Republican. We we all just want the same thing. At the end of the day, if we get sick, we want to make sure that we won't go bankrupt due to medical bills. We want to make sure that we have a job where we can support our family, opportunity. We want access to an education that will not just be a good education, but will be affordable. We don't want to go hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt in some cases because we decided to pursue an education. These are things that are not controversial. We all want them so bernie sanders you know listening to this guy's story and knowing that he's a coal miner and knowing that it's really difficult to promote coal type jobs which are just they're bad for the environment i thought bernie sanders had the perfect response the choice is not transforming our
1: energy system to protect the planet and throwing people out on the street the choice is reinvesting in communities that have been dev- devastated by changes in energy and make sure folks have decent paying jobs. And we can do that. We are not a poor country.
0: So what bernie sanders is describing is reminiscent of jill stein's green new deal where you look at these communities who relied on coal mining for example and you reinvest i mean these jobs are not going to come back the the secret's out these jobs aren't coming back even though donald trump promised that he would bring back coal jobs that's very unrealistic it's not happening so what you do is you move towards a green economy you invest in renewable clean technology And you do this in areas where the economies have been devastated, like this guy. You invest in green jobs in these areas so that way the people who lost their jobs can have new jobs in green, clean technology. And Bernie Sanders heard him out. He acknowledged his concerns. He realized this guy isn't the enemy. This guy isn't responsible for climate change as a country you know as a planet as a civilization human beings we've been irresponsible up until the last what 100 years where he started to acknowledge maybe All of our industrialization is having a really negative impact on the planet. So this isn't him. You know, the burden of climate change isn't on his back. But as a society, we have the responsibility to take care of these people and not just abandon them as we move towards a new renewable economy with actual clean energy. We look out for these people and we acknowledge that they don't deserve to lose their jobs. We have to give them new opportunities. Uh, and Bernie Sanders listened to them and he didn't respond like some robotic politician. He was sincere. He heard him out. And that's what you have to do. Now, on a similar note, I wanted to share this touching moment from the town hall because I thought it was just so great. I'm a retired UNWA minor and
3: I never dreamed that I'd get to thank you personally, myself, to for the bill that you have co-sponsored and uh, the Senate bill 175 the Miners Protection Act, which I'm one of those miners that will lose. I'm one of those miners that will lose his health care at the end of April if they don't pass that law. I come from local uh, 1440 in Mate One. It's a little old town on down the river where McDowell's water goes to when it leaves. McDowell County, and uh, we have over – we're one of the largest locals in the UMWA. We have over 800 members, all inactive. They're all retired. So we look at things different, and and we look at our health care and what we've already worked out. We're not going to mine any more coal. Our coal mining days are over, and we looked at to have the funds that we work for and we're that promised. were promised to us taken care of. That's all we asked. And it's a, I think it's kind of ironic that a senator from the Northeast
4: <laughs> yes.
3: <laughs> yes. <laughs> takes care of my benefits better than someone like Mitch McConnell.
4: Uh-huh.
0: So, I mean, after watching that, and you all know this is coming, I could only think Bernie would have won if Bernie Sanders was the Democratic nominee. If the DNC didn't rig it against Bernie Sanders, he would be the president right now, which is why I'm so angry at Democrats because they ruined their opportunity. They chose to lose with Hillary rather than to win with Bernie Sanders, even though it was risky and she was very unpopular, historically unpopular. They thought, you know, we're just going to hedge our bets with Hillary Clinton, because we don't want to get off of our reliance on big money donors. So Bernie would have won. And look, to those of you who are thinking this is just the exception, this isn't the first time that Bernie Sanders was able to convince Trump voters to agree with his policy ideas. I mean, during the last town hall he had with Trump voters, he converted someone in real time.
1: I'm assuming that you believe, correct me if I'm wrong, that we should not cut Social Security or Medicare or Medicaid. Is that correct or not?
0: Yeah. Okay. I believe it shouldn't
1: be cut. Okay. Do you know who is now working very hard to try to do that? Congress. Republicans in Congress oh, yes. have a plan oh, under the guise of saving Medicare and saving Social Security, making devastating cuts. That's what Republicans are now trying to do. The other point that you made, which is a very, I think you made it, or you, both of you have made it actually, is who's going to pay for this stuff? And that is a very fair point what all of us should know is that over the last twenty five years there has been a massive transfer of wealth in this country from you to the top one tenth of one percent in other words the middle class has shrunk and trillions of dollars have gone to the top one tenth of one percent do you think it's inappropriate to ask those people to stop paying their fair share of taxes so we can adequately fund medicaid and making public colleges and universities tuition-free? Is that an unfair thing to ask? I don't think it's an unfair thing to
5: ask.
6: They, the they got rich off us.
1: That's right. So it's time they put back.
0: Okay, that's all right. well, what I'm saying. Look. So look, I, I, I watch these town halls, I see how Bernie Sanders interacts with people and they know that he cares. He's not running for an election right now. He's doing this because he genuinely is concerned about their well-being, and this is why Bernie Sanders is the most popular politician in the country. A new poll just found this out. It's because he's genuine. He's not rehearsed. When I hear Bernie Sanders speak, I'm not worried that he's bullshitting me. Bernie Sanders is someone who is genuine, and if more politicians... We're just real, they just had organic conversations with real people, then we would be in a much different predicament than we are right now. So, when people ask me why I'm so hard on Democrats when I hate Republicans and Trump so much, this is why. It's because you have to be like Bernie Sanders, but the fact is that they don't want to be like Bernie Sanders, so we have to invest... In a new party the green party or we have to start a completely different party the people's party with bernie sanders as the head of that party because bernie sanders is proving that this red and blue state dichotomy it doesn't really exist we all want the same thing at the end of the day you just have to listen to people and hear them out and bernie sanders is proving that time and again so even though it's the case that senator bernie sanders has been appointed to a leadership position in the democratic party I think that deep down he knows that they're just exploiting him for his popularity, just as MSNBC is currently doing by hosting all of these town halls. But nonetheless, I think Bernie Sanders is privy privy to what they're doing, and I think that he knows that he's not going to be silenced because they're trying to give him some power. And he was recently asked what he thinks the Democratic Party stands for, and his response was, was pretty harsh. He states you're asking a good question and I can't give you a definitive answer. Certainly there are people in the Democratic Party who want to maintain the status quo. They would rather go down with the Titanic so long as they have first class seats. Damn. So Bernie Sanders, you know, he's harsh in his criticism, but everything he says is constructive. He's not being malicious even though he gets criticized still by the Clinton wing of the party for being too harsh on Democrats what he's saying is common sense and there's a reason why he's the most popular politician in America. It's because we believe him and he's willing to be introspective and talk about the flaws of America. And even though Chuck Schumer has scolded Bernie Sanders and tried to convince him to not criticize Democrats, well, Bernie Sanders isn't listening and it's because he shouldn't listen because if you just allow Democrats to continue doing business as usual, we are going to have Republicans in office for a lot longer than we want and also we're not going to have an effective opposition party so they need to get their act together right now and bernie sanders is the only one with a loud voice that's willing to call them out now with him saying that he doesn't have an answer as to what they stand for chris saliza of the washington post explains why this is actually really significant he says that bernie's comments are remarkable not only did sanders run for president in 2016 and win almost two dozen states but he also is now a member of the democratic Senate leadership thanks to minority leader Charles Schumer, and when asked one of the simplest questions in all of politics, what does your party stand for, he admits that he can't really answer it. Part of that is simply for effect. Of course, Sanders can offer his own vision, a liberal one, of what the Democratic Party stands for and where it needs to go. He chooses not to because he views the party as still too enthralled of the power brokers, donors, and consultant class and not committed enough to real change. By saying you don't really know what the party stands for, you are making sure people know you're not happy. And he should. We're not happy with the Democratic Party. A new poll was released that showed that the Democratic Party and Hillary Clinton have higher unfavorable ratings than Donald Trump and Mike Pence and the GOP. And this is because they not only are out of power because they screwed over progressives, but it's because they're not an effective opposition. It's because they're not listening. Even though Donald Trump is a disaster of a president, he at least showed that he is at least listening to some people. I don't believe him. I know he's a billionaire and he's out of touch, but some working class voters were duped over by him because he talked about these free trade deals that ship our jobs overseas so he's tapping into something democrats on the other end they have no clue what they stand for ask any democrat right now what they stand for and they have no idea they'll say you know we we want to provide opportunity for everyone we want equality well that's great those are all platitudes but i want specific concrete policy details as to how you bring about this vision. One way you could do that is just focus on one policy, single-payer healthcare system. I guarantee you, you will be a lot more popular. If I see a politician, regardless if they're Democrat, Green, even Republican, just saying that they are running and their number one goal, if they're elected, will be to bring about a single-payer healthcare system, I support that person. Even if I disagree with them on other policy issues, that person just almost automatically has my support because I know that that person is tapping into something that we care about. So, what Bernie Sanders is saying, it's the truth. When he talks about, you know, reaching out to voters, talking to voters, it would behoove the Democratic Party to listen, but they don't want to listen. They channel all this energy into maintaining the status quo and crushing progressives, but if they spent half that time crafting a message that would resonate with the American people, they would at least be a somewhat effective opposition party, but they've proven that they are incompetent and the Republicans are in control of all branches of government and they really have no true check on power except for the American people because Democrats, all they can do is talk about Donald Trump's personality, how he's unhinged, how he keeps lying. Yes, that's obvious. We all know Trump's lying, but... You're not going to win anybody over unless you have a counter message that will resonate and they don't have that. So Bernie Sanders is right to criticize them for not having a core message. They are the party of platitudes and they lack substance and this is sh- this is proving time and again that it's not helping them. So they don't want to listen but they have to if they ever want to be electorally viable again because your base will not support you if you're not offering them anything. Give us, uh, like, throw us a bone once in a while. Give the base some red meat. Give us a single-payer health care bill that you will push nonstop, relentlessly. But, I mean, they, they've they got nothing. They've become so sold out and beholden to their corporate donors that they don't give a damn about us. So this is why I say it's time to move on from the Democratic Party. Bernie Sanders needs to lead a brand new party, or at least migrate to the Greens, so that way we get a party that can actually be a real check on Trump and the Democrats, who will give progressives some type of leverage. President Trump recently unveiled his new budget, and even though admittedly I probably wouldn't be satisfied with anything he proposed, this budget is even more cruel and immoral than I could have anticipated. So according to Common Dreams meals on wheels amtrak teacher training after school and summer educational programs the national endowment for the arts the appalachian regional commission the national institutes of health the environmental protection agency all these initiatives and agencies, plus many more, face cuts or wholesale elimination under President Donald Trump's proposed, quote, skinny budget, officially unveiled Thursday. Meanwhile, the blueprint calls for increases in military spending, border and immigration enforcement, and money for charter and private schools. In fact, warned Diane Yentl, head of the National Low-Income Housing Coalition, Trump's budget would have a devastating impact on millions of the lowest-income people across the country. As expected, the proposal would cut overall funding for the Department of Housing and Urban Development by 13% or $6.2 billion compared to 2016 levels, resulting in the most severe cut to HUD since President Reagan dramatically reduced funding in the early 1980s. Now, the amount of programs and agencies he's cutting funding to, you can't count on your hands or your toes. I mean, there's just so many. Now, to give you an idea here, Capacity Building for Community Development and Affordable Housing and Neighborhood Reinvestment Corporation, both of these programs provide housing assistance to low-income families, and he is cutting their funding. The Chemical Safety Board, this is a board that investigates industrial chemical accidents. Also getting their funding cut. Some other examples here. United States Interagency Council on Homelessness. It coordinates federal response to homelessness. Targeted Air Shed Grants. Provides grants for air pollution control. Senior Community Service Employment Program. This is a program that funds job training for low-income unemployed seniors. Weatherization Assistance Program. This is a program that provides grants for weatherizing low-income homes. All of these programs and agencies are getting their funding cut significantly. Like, these are not small cuts. These are very substantial cuts. So to basically give you the summary here, what it boils down to is anything that will lead to killing people or kicking people out of the country, like war and enforcing of immigration laws, well then, there's going to be a lot of funding for that. Extra funding for that, in fact. But if it comes to helping out the poor and the disadvantaged well then the funding for these agencies or programs are being cut significantly now to give you one example here so he's going to be cutting the department of labor's funding by a fifth so Heidi shareholders of the economic Policy Institute stated if you care about US workers it makes no sense to cut a fifth of the budget of the key agency that protects workers from being killed on the job that protects their pay and benefits that helps them get retrained after job loss and provides unemployment benefits if they can't find a job working people deserve to work in a safe environment and get paid the wages and overtime they are owed without a fully functioning Department of Labor workers will not not have recourse when taken advantage of by unscrupulous employers, and employers who do want to follow the law will not have the assistance they need to comply. So, I mean, this proposal makes me so angry. So angry. This, this is just cruel. I don't know how else to describe it. This is a very cruel budget proposal that will screw over the middle class, the poor, the disadvantaged, basically, basically everyone who's not a multinational corporation or a militarist. You're going to get screwed over. So... Donald Trump is just shameless. He has absolutely no shame and I want to share Bernie Sa- uh, what Bernie Sanders said because he actually slammed this budget and he articulated exactly what I'm feeling. He states, President Trump's budget is morally obscene and bad economic policy. It will cause devastating pain to the very people Trump promised to help during the campaign. At a time of massive income and wealth inequality, when 43 million Americans are living in poverty and half of the older Americans have no retirement savings, we should not slash programs that senior citizens, children, and the working people rely on in order to provide a massive increase in spending to the military-industrial complex. Trump's priorities are exactly opposite of where we should be heading as a nation. To just show no regard, to even show contempt to the poor, to show that you care more about killing people in foreign countries to show that you care more about kicking people out of the country than helping the most disadvantaged people in the country. We're fucked as a country. We're not a compassionate society. So, I mean, to anyone who is part of the working class who voted for Donald Trump, I feel really horrible for you. I mean, he really pulled the wool over your eyes. He duped you. uh, And he's playing you for a fool. And as he decides to basically make the largest cuts to these programs and agencies that we've seen in a generation, who will actually call him out? in government will any democrats stand up bernie sanders is calling him out but i mean this is a disgrace what democrats need to do is go on every single news show on cable news and talk about these specific cuts and how they're going to impact the american people i mean i can't i haven't even gone through all of them on here there's there's more agencies and programs that he's cutting uh but i just can't go through all of them he's basically cutting everything with the exception of military spending and immigration enforcement It's just absurd to me. It's just downright immoral. So last week, I talked about how the Republican replacement to the Affordable Care Act is a complete and utter disaster, and I expressed hope that this bill would never see the light of day. And this is because we have reason to believe that it wouldn't be passed because there's even a number of Republicans that oppose it. Now, since I posted that video, the prospects of this bill passing diminished substantially, especially after the Congressional Budget Office released a bombshell report that actually quantified just how atrocious this healthcare bill is. So the New York Times explains the budget office estimated that 52 million people would be uninsured in 2026 under the house republican bill compared with 28 million projected under current law the report foresees huge changes in medicaid by 2026 it said federal medicaid spending would be 25 percent lower under the house bill than is projected under current law and the number of medicaid beneficiaries would be 17 percent lower with 14 million fewer people covered by medicaid so with this report from trump's congressional budget office You just simply can't sell this bill to Congress, and you certainly can't sell this bill to the American people. Now, I have reason to believe that Donald Trump is jumping ship on his own bill because there was a report from Breitbart released just the other day where they tried to throw Paul Ryan under the bus. Let's listen, and I'll tell you why I suspect that Donald Trump is now trying to sabotage Paul Ryan.
7: There are basically two things that I want to make really clear. as for myself as your speaker, I am not going to defend Donald Trump, not now, not in the future. Um, as you probably heard, I just invited him from my first congressional district uh, GOP event this weekend. a thing I do every year, and I'm not going to be campaigning with him over the next 30 days. Um, look, you guys know I have real concerns with our nominee. Um, I hope you appreciate that um, I'm doing what I think is best for you, or the members, not what's best for me. And so I wanna do what's best for our members, and I think uh, that this is the right thing to do. I'm gonna focus my time on, on campaigning for House Republicans. Uh, to everyone on this call, this is gonna be a turbulent month. Uh, many of you on this call are facing tough reelections. Some of you are not, um, but with respect to Donald Trump, I would encourage you to do what you think is best and do what you feel you need to do. Personally, you need to decide what's best for you. Um, And you all know what's best for you, where you are. Um, But the last thing I want to do is to help Hillary Clinton get the presidency and get Congress. Um, So the last thing we want to be doing is giving Hillary Clinton a blank check in Congress. Uh, That's why I'm gonna spend the rest of this month fighting for Congress fighting for our majorities i'm going to spend the next 28 days working hard with all of our members to get reelected because we de- we need to check on hillary clinton if donald trump
0: and mike pence don't win the presidency but i want to basically close with this um his comments are indefensible they're not in keeping with our principles so i'm not going to try to defend them um and i'm going to focus on congress okay so hear me out i think that this attack from breitbart on paul ryan uh This all, the timing is just so conspicuous because when you consider the fact that TrumpCare is currently imploding and he's chosen to not put his name on it, well, it seems as though he is trying to sow discord among the right and he's trying to pawn this bill off on Ryan so that way he takes the fall for it. And if you get Trump supporters pissed off with Ryan, then he could say something like, well, you know, this was Ryan's idea and they would be more inclined to believe that Ryan is to blame for this bill. And also given the fact that Donald Trump's chief strategist is the former president of Breitbart, this all just seems a little bit Too conspicuous. I I don't think it's a coincidence. I think that this is an active attempt on Donald Trump's part and on his administration to try to sink Paul Ryan and get him to take blame for this bill. Now, I may be reading way too much into this, but it really seems as though that's what's the case. And, you know, we'll see how this plays out. But if this bill fails, then Republicans have no choice but to come up with another replacement to Obamacare because that's what they've been saying they would do for the last seven years. So, I mean, if they don't deliver on their one promise, they'll prove that they really don't know how to govern. But, I mean, the ultimate takeaway from all of this is that, you know, once they inevitably come out with their shitty band-aid of a response to Obamacare, well, then the Republicans— will be done they'll wash their hands they'll say we fixed obamacare and obviously there'll be more flaws with trump care and then democrats will then try to fix trump care and then the republicans will try to fix their fix the trump care and you're just going to have this unending cycle of a broken health care system so part of this i think i'm seeing the silver lining in that this will all facilitate the shift towards single payer. And there's an article in The Hill that talks about how this may lead to Bernie Care once and for all. Because as this debate continues to unfold, support for a single payer healthcare system continues to grow. And they explain how this current healthcare debate is paving the way for Bernie Care. They state the issue before us is how to fix Obamacare. The long overdue answer a single payer healthcare that I would call Bernie Care. Under Bernie Care, healthcare would be a right for all Americans to enjoy, not merely a profit center for giant insurance companies or big pharma. Under Bernie Care, the highly popular and brilliantly successful Medicare would be the model for a Medicare for All system that would shift power to consumers and patients, universalize insurance coverage, and lower insurance premiums and drug costs for customers. If Trump Care passes, there will be an electoral revolution against Republicans in 2018 and 2020 elections as voters feel the pain from the GOP plan. If Trumpcare is defeated, Republicans have nobody to blame except themselves for spending 7 years running against the increasingly popular Obamacare without having any alternative to repeal or replace it. As Trumpcare sinks, Berniecare will rise, keeping the best of Obamacare and building new bridges to true and revolutionary healthcare reform after the great debate that is only beginning and long overdue. So, I mean, the answer... The fix, it's just all right in front of us. It's its the big elephant in the room. There's one way you can fix Obamacare. There's one way you can end the healthcare debate once and for all. You implement a single-payer healthcare system. Now, the reason why we haven't done this is because all of the politicians, or certainly the majority, they're bought off by the private insurance industry. They accept campaign contributions from these health insurance companies that rip us off. They're then lobbied by health insurance companies. They receive talking points from health insurance companies, and then they choose to only create a healthcare plan that is within the confines of the free market, and that's not going to work. You can't Economize something like healthcare. It's just not something that you want to try to make profitable. You want a system that provides healthcare for people. I mean, it's in the name, healthcare. And care and profit are mutually exclusive things. You can't try to combine those two. You can't provide adequate healthcare to people if there's a profit incentive. So you have to move towards single payer. And the silver lining at the end of this whole debate. Is that this is slowly but surely paving the way, and all it's going to take is the American people rising up and demanding a single payer healthcare system. So I mean as Trump care implodes, as Trump tries to use Breitbart, the propaganda wing of the alt-right, to sow discord among the right, what we're seeing here is the extension of this stupid healthcare debate that is unnecessarily long, and more and more people will see that Bernie Sanders is proposing the end. Of this healthcare debate single pair it's the way to go canadians are very happy uh people in the united kingdom are very happy and it doesn't even have to be single pair even though that'd be the easiest if you propose some type of national health system like the uk like france there's variations of systems where everyone is covered uh, by healthcare, I mean you will make this healthcare debate non-existent. We can move on and fix other aspects of our broken broken political system. But so long as we have a free market model of healthcare and we don't even give people a public option, this debate will persist and Bernie Care will get more popular. So I love branding this as Bernie Care. And we need to realize that single-payer is non-negotiable at this point. I'm not willing to concede or support a politician that's not in favor of single-payer. If you don't get on board with something that's an easy, common-sense solution, I can't support you. Senator Joe Manchin was on MSNBC, and he was talking about his opposition to the Republicans' proposal to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. Now, throughout the course of the interview, I thought that he said things that were mostly agreeable. He talked about how you shouldn't just repeal the Affordable Care Act, you should just try to build upon it uh, and fix where it's lacking. However, there was a portion of the interview where he was kind of put on the spot and asked about what he would particularly do to fix the Affordable Care Act. And his answer was really perplexing to me. Let's say the system was kept
8: in place as is, but you had one change you could make to Obamacare to improve it, whether it's for the country at large or West Virginia specifically, what would that one change be? Well, the first change would be is the market basically for the
1: 26-year-olds. Mm-hmm. I've got a 26-year-old, I haven't found one that bought it yet. I haven't found one 26-year-old. Okay, how do you make it, how do you make it uh, more learn for 26 You change the requirements of that plant. You have catastrophic, you change it, we call it a copper plant, and it should be about 80 to $100 a month. Mm-hmm. Right now it's 46 and only
8: young people can purchase the catastrophic plan or can everyone purchase that catastrophic plan?
1: Well, you have to open the market up sure. to the product of the market and some people right. if you're a healthy 45 year old sure. and you're doing everything right You don't want all this other so we Yeah, we but the thing had about had... healthcare is that
8: you don't know when you're gonna get hit with something That's right? exactly so, so if, if you, you get give catastrophic chance... coverage to a bunch of people, you're right You're gonna end up with a lot of people not having coverage that they need
2: It's you know, hard
0: So his answer tells me that Democrats are not having meetings about the messaging they're not talking about how they respond to the flaws of the Affordable Care Act, because that answer is easy. He talked about, you know, well, this whole thing is broken because we need 26-year-olds to buy health insurance, but they don't want to do it because they're healthy. So, we offer them, you know, uh, catastrophic coverage. Okay, that's not really the flaw. What you need to do is you answer every single question about fixing Obamacare with a public option or single-payer, and I know that they're not going to support single-payer, so at a minimum, you say public option. So the fact that Democrats haven't gotten together, the fact that Chuck Schumer hasn't rallied them and said, look, anytime we ask about what we do uh, to fix Obamacare, because it's flawed, you can't deny that fact, we tell people that we want a public option, but his answer really communicates to me that they're completely lost. They realize that they're opposed to Donald Trump's uh, new bill, but they don't know exactly what they would do differently. So, I mean, they're kind of in the same predicament as Republicans. They're trying to defend a shitty health care law that is, quite frankly, completely broken, uh, but they don't necessarily know what to do to fix it. The answer is very, very simple you say you support a public option i mean that that's that's such a moderate reform that you do because for those of you that want government run healthcare you have the option hence the public option and you appease those people. So it makes no sense to me why this wasn't his answer. A public option would bring down the cost of healthcare premiums because you have a government-run plan that forces the private health insurance companies to compete with government. So they can't rip us off because that government-run plan will not be based on profit, it'll be based on coverage. But we have a model right now where these private insurance companies rip us off And they have a profit-driven healthcare model. If you have that model, you're going to see a conflict between covering people and getting them health care and profits. Those two things are very difficult to reconcile. So, it, it makes no sense to me why I don't see Democrats hammering away at a public option. They should be saying, look, we move to public option, and from there, we build upon the public option, and we move towards a single-payer health care system. That's the only solution at this point. But they're not doing it. So, uh, I <laughs> It's just so frustrating to watch. And look, we all know that Joe Manchin's response is unacceptable because he's required to work within the confines of the private insurance industry because, would you look at that, he accepted over half a million dollars from the health industry, and that includes almost 200000 from insurance companies. Now, in addition to the corruption component of this story— Joe Manchin resides in a red state. He was elected in West Virginia, and he's a Democratic senator from West Virginia. So he thinks he has to support the more conservative health care plan and be in favor of a free market model. But what he doesn't realize is just the other day, Bernie Sanders was in your state, Joe, and he said this and was applauded.
1: My view is different than most in Congress. I happen to believe that health care is a right, and we should move to a Medicare
0: for
3: all
0: So, I mean, the takeaway is that I am incredibly frustrated with Democrat strategy or lack thereof, because, I mean, you know that this is going to be a battle. So, how have you guys not come up with a really quick, simple fix? Public option. And you just keep talking about a public option. You go on every single show. You say, we are going to move towards a public option. How have you not done this? How have you all not gotten on the same page when it comes to fixing the Affordable Care Act? Because you know that you have to come up with something. You have to come up with some type of fix. And the fact that they're just not all on the same page of public option, which is something that's just moderate health care reform, proves that they are just beyond repair when it comes to corruption. So I just find this frustrating. I mean, look, I, I don't want to give you the impression that everything he said during this interview was wrong because I agree with most of what he said. However... When it comes to fixing the Affordable Care Act, the solution is easy. We all like Medicare. It has a very high approval rating. We all love Medicaid. Have a system where we have a government option so that way we don't have to go through these private health insurance companies that rip us off. I mean, my deductible is $6,500. I don't have the money. I cannot pay $6,500. So I'm tired of being ripped off if I had the option of going to a government-run plan I would absolutely gravitate towards that system because when I was on Medicare, or excuse me, Medicaid, it was a much better plan than my shitty health insurance plan. So, they've got to realize that they're not going to win anybody over by proposing just these little vanilla reforms that are just band-aids on a huge problem. The answer is public option, and ultimately... That move towards a public option should facilitate the shift towards single payer ultimately, because that's the end game. Single payer. That's non negotiable for me. A single payer option would end this debate once and for all. And the fact that they're not even talking about a public option and we don't see them just talking about this day in and day out, it, it just shows that they're so lost. Last week, I talked about how Cory Booker was shamed into doing the right thing because he voted against a bill that would have facilitated the importation of prescription drugs from Canada. This would have substantially reduced the cost of prescription drugs, which we absolutely need. And we know that his vote was contingent on the fact that he took almost $400,000 from the pharmaceutical industry. So he was called out by Bernie Sanders. Millions of people across the country just rained down on him, and he was forced to change his position, and he's now working with Bernie Sanders on a bill that would import prescription drugs from Canada. Now, he states that he didn't support this bill initially because there were a lack of safety standards that compelled him to vote against it. Now, what he says is pretty contradictory, but he responded to Bernie Sanders' criticism about this bill, and he continued to lie and obfuscate the truth like he usually does.
5: Let me ask you about drugs, because that's obviously an important part of health care, and you know Bernie Sanders was very critical of you and 12 other Democrats for voting against a bill uh, that would have allowed the importation of drugs uh, from Canada Um, and and uh, I know that you've answered as to why you voted that way Um, but he was very harsh he said you lacked you and the other Democrats lack the guts to stand
2: up to the pharmaceutical industry. Well, well, first of all, y- you know that that was not a bill. That was, was a resonance. It was a resolution. It okay. was not even something that if everybody in the Senate voted would have changed one thing. It was a late night resolution during a voterama that all some of us were asking is, hey, put some safety requirements on it. They weren't put on. And so I went right to work. I said, hey, Bernie, uh, uh, to Senator Sanders, excuse me, let's work together. Senator Casey, Senator Sanders, and I put our heads together, worked on a bill that is is incredible. Not only will it allow import but it gives the safety guarantees that a lot of us were concerned about. This has nothing to do with pharma. It doesn't do with courage. Oh, I can assure you it has everything to do with big pharma and courage, Corey. So he continues to lie and obfuscate the truth
0: like he typically does, and he's a pretty good liar. I'll give him that. But progressives aren't buying it. So he states it was not a bill, it was a resolution. So if everyone voted for it, it wouldn't have changed one thing. Well, that's not really true because with these types of resolutions, if you vote for them, then it could facilitate a passage to the codification of a real bill that would actually allow us to import drugs from Canada. And this... It's really weird what he's saying if you think about it so if he really bought his own argument he wouldn't care so much about the safety standards as he's saying he does because you can support this allegedly symbolic bill but later when a quote-unquote real bill comes up well then you can make sure that it includes safety standards but if this bill really is just a symbolic gesture then why wouldn't you signal to the american people that you do want them to be able to import drugs from canada so i mean you're contradicting yourself here If this bill is just symbolic, if it's meaningless, then why would you care so much about safety standards? It makes no sense. Then he also talked about uh, that the bill didn't have safety standards, so he went right to work. Uh, And again, this isn't how this whole debacle played out. Once you received criticism for your vote, you then espoused talking points from the pharmaceutical companies that lobby you as a means of damage control, and once you realized that we weren't buying what you were selling us, you then went to Chuck Schumer, who held a meeting with Bernie Sanders, and he literally scolded Bernie Sanders and told him to cool it on criticizing Democrats that voted against this bill because Republicans are the real enemy, and then you were hoping that Chuck Schumer could nudge Bernie to get him to tell his supporters to cool it, but once you realized that everyone was still pissed off at you, then you decided to go and ask Bernie Sanders to write a bill with you. So you didn't automatically do the right thing. You were shamed into doing the right thing. You didn't just automatically go to Bernie and say, hey, let's work on something else because I disagree with this bill. It wasn't until we called you out that you decided to change course. And once you realize that this may actually hurt your 2020 election chances when you run for president, inevitably, that's when you decided to do the right thing. So it's not as though you just automatically got to work. You voted against this bill and you thought that you would go unchecked, but that's not what happened. We all know that your vote was contingent on the $380,000 that you took from Big Pharma. Now, thankfully, Jake Tapper actually called him out on this point.
5: You know that there are progressives out there who are looking for a white knight and were disappointed in that vote. And in addition, I think in 2014, you were the number one recipient of donations from pharmaceutical companies and and uh... executives of of them uh... how can these people who are very wary of big pharma and very wary of the fact that rising drug prices is one of the main reasons why healthcare costs are going up so much that you're going to be on their side and not the side of
2: all these pharmaceutical companies that are in your state i'm a big believer that life is about what you do and not what you what you say and so my uh... uh performance in the senate when it comes to issues that really are important to my community like please understand this A lot of folks in the Senate go home. I go home to Newark, New Jersey, Central Ward, a community of folks who are uh, working class folks who are battling every day against rising rents, rising college costs, a lot of the challenges we're facing. That's where my loyalty lies. And we're, we're trying to, in the Senate, my team is trying to focus on that. So when it comes to pharmaceutical prices, they're too high. And my, if you look at my performance in the Senate, whether it's a bill I just did with the Senator Sanders, or talking and working about other ways to lower prescription drugs. In fact, go back to when I was a was it when I was a mayor, uh, we had ways to, we, we did an incredibly innovative program to lower prescription drug costs and get more people in the preventative care. So my my work, and, my lo- and you know this from my history, what got me into politics in the first place was representing low-income communities. I still live in a, in a census tract where the median income is $14,000 per individual. That's where my loyalty lies. I haven't put anything out there ever that's contrary to that.
0: Mm, oh my God, stop fucking lying. Wow. <laughs> that- That was shameless. I mean, I don't even know what to say about that. He says, I'm a big believer that life is about what you do and not what you say. Right. So you just voted down a bill that would have facilitated the importation of prescription drugs from Canada. So if life really is about what you do, then we know what you're all about, Corey. You took money from Big Pharma and then you voted in their favor. So it's funny to me that you're going to say this. And then he cites the bill that he recently created with Bernie Sanders. You don't get to do that. Are you serious? You don't get to brag about a bill that you were shamed into supporting once you got criticized for it. You don't get to boast about that, Corey. Are you joking right now? You literally have the gall to boast about the bill that we had to twist your arms to get you to support. No, 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 no. If you weren't on the right side of a common sense issue from the beginning, then you don't get to brag about that. And furthermore, your contention with this original bill that you didn't... Agree with the safety standards, they just weren't there. How many people are dying from lack of regulations on prescription drugs in Canada, Corey? Zero people. Canada has higher regulatory standards on their prescription drugs than we have so nobody believes you cory i mean you may be a good liar and when we listen to you speak you're charismatic and i think some people who aren't educated about you are inclined to believe you but what you did was so brazen that we see through your lies even if you're so great at telling lies it's bullshit cory this guy is a master in obfuscation of the truth and he really is thinking that he's going to run for president and during this interview jake tapper actually asked him you know are you planning to run for president and he said no he shut it down but Come on. He recently attended a summit with Democrats where they talked about what ideas you would bring to the table if you do choose to run in 2020. So we know that he's going to run for president in 2020, and he thinks that he's going to be able to sweep this under the rug. But believe this, Corey, when I say this. Progressives will never forget this. We will never let you live this down because it's something that's so shameless, so dirty, so corrupt that you deserve to be shamed for this as long as you're a politician. It's disgusting. So you don't get to lie and get away with it anymore. Those days are long gone. We're tired of Democrats. We're tired of Republicans. And you don't get to be just a little bit less shitty than Republicans. And in fact, Ted Cruz voted for this bill. So if even Ted Cruz... Is on the right side of an issue and you're on the wrong side of an issue, we know you're not progressive, Corey. The 2016 election is over, but there are still special elections occurring across the country in numerous locations. And we currently have a real opportunity to elevate progressives that would be game changers. And when I say progressives, I'm not talking about Democrats. I'm talking about Green Party candidates that would change the game when it comes to politics. So the first one I want to talk about is Sherry Honkala. Now, Sherry is not new to politics. She was actually on the 2012 Green Party ticket as Jill Stein's vice presidential running mate. Now, currently, she's running to be a state representative in the 197th district in Pennsylvania. And according to Phil. Mag, the Green Party didn't file Honkala's nomination papers by the January 30th deadline, so Honkala was left off the ballot. She petitioned a Commonwealth judge to order the Pennsylvania Department of State to put her name on the ballot, claiming that a Green Party representative and a state employee had miscommunicated about the filing process, but Judge Wesley Oler Jr. rejected the petition this afternoon. So after that, Any normal person would give up if they didn't really care about politics, but she is not. She's trying to persevere in spite of this, and she is now continued her campaign, but she's doing a write-in campaign that's unprecedented, really. Now, before you say that it's a long shot, she's raised $70,000, and she's actually well known in her community. So, she's been a longtime activist there, and Philadelphia has seen a substantial increase in third-party support. So, she was endorsed by Our Revolution, and she is not a long shot candidate. She's actually in a winnable position. Now, according to Philly Voice, if she's elected, she said she plans to live up to campaign promise including the day after I'm elected, I will drive around, starting with the woman sleeping in the park across the street from my house, picking people up and getting them housing. That... Is inspiring. That's what I call a politician who gives a damn about the people. Now, if you're wondering about her other policy positions, she is basically the female equivalent of Bernie Sanders.
9: I think that most of us in this country have been taught to li- adjust to a lower standard of living, that somehow that there's not enough to go around, and that people are taught to proceed from this notion of scarcity. When we actually live in a very wealthy nation, and I've had the opportunity to travel all over the world, and people just don't get it. They don't get it why we've decided to just like le- let you know, women and children sleep outside of major corporations, in front of mansions, you name it. And we have a responsibility to be morally outraged and to do something about it. I, I'm no Mother Teresa, <laughs> and I have not taken no oath to poverty. Um, but I do continue to live in the poorest district in Pennsylvania, in Kensington, and it's um, it's not a choice, and it's a really hard thing to explain to people. Um, but I, you know, I really think it's like seeing a railroad track, and um, I believe that if you know something, or you feel like you have a responsibility to do something about something, because you have those particular skills and knowledge that you have a, respons- a moral responsibility to do something about it.
0: Now, Sherry isn't the only Green Party politician that's becoming increasingly popular. So there is a 26-year-old Green Party candidate that is running in the 34th District of California named Kenneth Mejia, and he is a self-proclaimed Berniecrat, and he's actually crowdfunding his political campaign and raised more than $38,000. And the best part about Kenneth is that when you listen to him talk about policy— Man, it, it's like music to your ears. Listen. If you look at what the Green Party and what we're fighting for is, number one, single payer, like
4: healthcare. Like, okay. the, the working class needs health insurance. Right now, they're not getting it. Yeah, but number then we two, gotta pay more taxes, <laughs> right? What would we well, have? We could actually fund it through uh, the Federal Reserve, through modern monetary theory is, is, is another big thing we could do. And then also oh. taxing the 1% as well. So in terms of helping the working class, what we wanna do is, uh, what I'm pl- pushing for in my platform is, guaranteed um, basic income, $12,000 a year. Oh, you guys are so rad. See, that's the <laughs> problem. You guys get yeah. so crazy. That scares For, the hell out of everyone right? listening exactly. when you say stuff like, they're like, well, they're crazy. Yeah. Another big thing, 30 hour work weeks. You know, there are like eight countries in Europe who, who work less than 30 hours. You know how on average, how much uh, Germany works? Germany work works week? less than 25. 25 hours a week? Uh, yeah, on average. And they provide health care as a right. They provide education as a right. How else can we provide the, the working class health uh, education as a right? Like, that's another big thing in canceling student debt. Student so how debt, could yeah. they do that? How, do, how does Germany people work half as much as they do in America, basically? Is that what you're saying? Right. Those, those other countries, exactly. Those industrialized nations, they work lesser hours. Wow.
0: So what he's saying there is... Identical to my beliefs, he's basically a male equivalent of Jill Stein. So I kind of see Sherry Hankala as a female equivalent of Bernie Sanders, and I see Kenneth Mejia as a male equivalent of Jill Stein, even though he identifies uh, as a Berniecrat. But what he's saying here are policies that I absolutely agree with. That most people think is too liberal. He's talking about a universal basic income of twelve thousand per year. This is something that I think is essential, especially when you see how our economy is gravitating towards automation. So we have to guarantee people a standard of living that they will not fall below. And if you give them $1,000 per month, you are ensuring that a lot more people will not fall victim to homelessness or poverty or hunger. So these are policies that I think are humane, that as a humanist, I I'm obligated to support. I I love everything that he's saying. So these are people who I think would be game changers. We have to support them. Now, Sherry's election is coming up. So if you do want to support her campaign and donate to her, you're going to have to do it quickly because I believe next week is when her election is occurring and towards the end of the month, Kenneth's election will be occurring. So these are people who really inspire me because in spite of the odds that are stacked against them, I mean, running a write-in campaign, being a Green Party candidate, I think that these people are so inspiring, and when you 're seeing how much money they 're able to raise just through grassroots methods, not taking any corporate donations, this is the future this is absolutely the future of the country because if our politicians are not willing to get money out of politics, we will see more crowd funded po- political campaigns I mean, look at Lawrence Lessig he was running on the Democratic Party ticket, and even though they brazenly rigged it against him before they rigged it against Bernie. He raised a million dollars and he said, you know, he would get into the presidential race if he raised one million bucks, and he did. So this is what we are beginning to see. We're seeing the shift of true progressives from raising money off of big donors to crowdfunding their campaigns. It's incredibly inspiring, and during this dark political time that we're currently in, These types of candidates are what we need more of. So, if you can support them in any way, please do it because these are the people who are going to change the country. And even if they're not successful, they're still paving the way for other progressives that see that it's possible that you can raise money exclusively via grassroots methods. You don't have to take money from large corporations. You can take money from the people and represent the people exclusively and show them that you're only looking out for their interests by taking their money only. So, I absolutely am inspired by these two and i really hope that they are successful and if you can please support them throughout the course of his presidential campaign donald trump was extremely harsh on hillary clinton and rightly so because she was just way too cozy with wall street specifically goldman sachs and goldman sachs is a criminal institution that was responsible in part for the crash in 2008. Now, Donald Trump, almost as soon as he was elected, started doing exactly what he criticized Hillary Clinton of doing. He began to get extremely cozy with Wall Street, and particularly, he's been really brazen about the cozy relationship he's cultivated with Goldman Sachs. And this is all going to lead to another crash. So The Intercept explains, The continuity of Wall Street's dominant role in American politics, regardless of what party sits in power or how reviled the financial industry finds itself across the country, was perhaps never more evident than when Jake Seward, now a Goldman Sachs spokesperson, on Tuesday praised the selection of Jim Donovan, a Goldman Sachs managing director for the number two position in the Treasury Department under Steve Mnuchin, himself a former Goldman Sachs partner. Mnuchin and Donovan are just two of five Goldman Goldman expats in high-level positions on Trump's team. Steve Bannon spent unlimited time at Goldman Sachs, but White House assistant Dina Powell, who headed the bank's philanthropic efforts, and National Economic Council Director Gary Cohn, Goldman's former president, had higher-ranking positions for a longer period. Jay Clayton, Trump's nominee for the Securities and Exchange Commission, was a partner for Goldman's main law firm, Sullivan & Cromwell. White House Chief of Staff Ryan's Priebus reportedly blocked Donovan from Treasury initially amid fears of an image problem with too many Goldman guys, but Donovan got the post anyway. Other big banks are represented inside Team Trump as well. Several expats of Mnuchin's One West Bank, which repeatedly brutalized homeowners during the foreclosure crisis, have been rumored for key spots at the banking regulations. The same day as Donovan, Trump announced the nomination of David Malpass as Treasury Undersecretary for International Affairs. Malpass was the chief economist for Bear Stearns right before the investment bank imploded. He literally wrote an opinion piece called Don't Panic About credit markets for Wall Street Journal in August of 2007, noting housing and debt markets are not that big a part of the U.S. economy. Banks have celebrated since Trump's election, composing the lion's share of the Trump bump in stock prices. Goldman Sachs shares have risen from $181.92 on election day to around $250 today, an increase that accounts for as much as one-fifth of the total rise in the Dow Jones Industrial Average over that period. Not only do Goldman executives benefit, but so do their alumni. Cohn received nearly $300 million in severance from Goldman after moving into government. He's vowed to recuse himself from anything directly affecting his former company, but that doesn't necessarily apply to tax and regulatory policies affecting the entire financial sector. So, Donald Trump is doing everything that he criticized Hillary Clinton for, but perhaps to an even worse extent. You cannot continue to appoint people from this criminal institution, Goldman Sachs, and expect there to not be harmful consequences. I mean, that's putting aside the obvious conflict of interest and the issue of corruption, but these people should be in jail right now, and you're appointing them to your administration, and the overall takeaway from this isn't just that corruption is a problem, but you are making us vulnerable to another economic crash, because the people who helped crash the economy should not be regulating the market that they were previously working for. This is just ridiculous. And someone who I absolutely respect, Noam Chomsky, warned that he is leading us down a very dangerous path. President Donald Trump's decision to load up his cabinet with Wall Street insiders has put the U.S. on a collision course to another crash and that taxpayers will once again be expected to pick up the tab. This is what Noam Chomsky is indicating. He states, as soon as Trump was elected and since stock values and financial institutions escalated to the sky, he continued, investors are delighted he's going to eliminate regulations and let them make more profit. Of course, it'll lead to another crash, but that's somebody else's problem. The taxpayers will take care of that. So, I mean, Donald Trump duped over people. One of his last campaign ads was talking about how the political establishment, they're so entrenched with special interests, and now here he is doing everything he was critical of uh, when it comes to Hillary Clinton and the establishment and even other establishment Republicans. So, he claimed that they were puppets, and now, after taking money from these Criminal institutions that crash the economy, he is being their puppet. And yes, corruption is a problem. I think it should be the center of the story, but the consequences of this are far worse. I think we're going to see another economic crash because of his irresponsibility, because you are appointing people to regulate the industry that they are a part of. Well, obviously, they don't want to regulate this industry and they will facilitate the deregulation of Wall Street. And when that happens, We're going to see the same thing we already saw we saw how this book plays out we know what happens we have spoilers stop allowing people to regulate the industries that they came from it hasn't worked in the past it's never going to work this is why we say that the game is rigged we need a political revolution because no matter who you elect they're always beholden to the people that donated to their campaigns they're always beholden to these large multinational corporations and financial institutions that screw us over, that crash the economy, and force us to bail them out. Well, I'm done with that. We shouldn't be rewarding Goldman Sachs. We should be putting their executives in jail after what they did in 2008. But Donald Trump, he's a billionaire. He doesn't understand our frustration with the big banks. And anyone who voted for him was complete and utterly duped over. So I I, I feel bad for those people because, man, you were played. Attorney General Jeff Sessions, who infamously declared that good people don't smoke marijuana, has been seen as a threat since he became Attorney General, specifically to the recreational marijuana industry. Now, this is because he's been a consistent enemy of legalization, so Salon explains Sessions conceded that his antiquated views on marijuana might be unfashionable on Wednesday, but insisted that our nation needs to say clearly once again that using drugs will destroy your life, pointing to former first lady Nancy Reagan's Just Say No anti-drug campaign. Sessions called marijuana a life-wrecking dependency that is only slightly less awful than heroin. Wow. We need to say, as Nancy Reagan said, just say no, don't do it. There's no excuse for this, Sessions said. It is not recreational.
1: And incidentally, you are stupid.
0: So in an effort to combat the marijuana and opioid epidemics, because those things are just exactly the same, He's saying that we need something like Nancy Reagan's campaign akin to D.A.R.E. where we just say no to drugs. Now, never mind the fact that in states with uh, medical marijuana legalized, they see lower opioid overdose rates uh, because that's a treatment option. And furthermore, he's ignoring the fact that D.A.R.E. did not work. It was ineffective. So Reagan's most ubiquitous prevention program, D.A.R.E., was ineffectual at best. Researchers found that teenagers who were enrolled in the drug prevention program were just as likely to use drugs as those who did not receive this training, according to Scientific American, after Congress passed the Drug-Free Schools and Communities Act in 1986. Mandating zero tolerance for any drugs or alcohol found on public school grounds, education experts said the so-called school-to-prison pipeline began to explode in public schools across the nation. Now, if he wants to launch an anti-drug propaganda campaign, I think that would be a waste of taxpayer dollars, and I think that we would be better served as a society if we direct that money towards drug rehabilitation programs, so that way we can actually get people who are addicted to opioids treatment, uh, but I mean, if he wants to do that... That's less problematic than him just outright banning marijuana at the federal level and enforcing our draconian federal uh, prohibition laws. But the real question is, will he or won't he? Because, you know, there are times during his tenure as Attorney General that he's indicated that he will crack down on marijuana, but there's been other times where he said he would lay off. So, according to the Huffington Post, he is planning to not enforce the federal laws. So, after delivering prepared remarks comparing marijuana to heroin and insisting that using drugs will destroy your life, Sessions told reporters that much of the Obama-era guidance that paved the way for states to legalize marijuana is valid. It's the clearest indication yet that he may not be readying for a nationwide crackdown as some drug policy reformers had feared. Sessions said he may have some different ideas myself in addition to that, but indicated that the Justice Department doesn't have the resources to enforce federal prohibition in states across the country. So this is phenomenal news, and I'm not going to thank Jeff Sessions for this because we know that this is entirely contingent upon the fact that he has zero political capital. He has no legitimacy because we all know that he lied under oath and committed perjury, so he's lucky that he's not getting uh, more calls for him to step down, even though it's been overwhelming. I mean everyone should be raining down on him right now and asking him and calling on him to step down. So, I mean, he doesn't really have the political capital needed to do anything like this. Uh, But furthermore, part of this is because he knows that grassroots activists will not allow him to take on this unwinnable political issue right now because you will not win even though this guy is straight out of the Leave it to Beaver era. You you just, you can't turn back the time. You open Pandora's box, you can't put the cat back in the bag. You legalize marijuana in a couple of states, more fall, and now we're seeing this domino effect. We will have marijuana legalized recreationally in all 50 states. It's only a matter of time. Now we just have to be patient. So trying to turn back the clock on it is just, it's unwinnable and it's stupid. It's just, it's just a stupid political strategy so I'm glad that he sees that and I'm glad that he at least acknowledges implicitly at least that he has no political capital so this is good news that doesn't mean that we you know uh remove some pressure off of Jeff Sessions because the minute we start becoming complacent I think he's going to try to attack marijuana but I mean if he wants to do an anti-drug campaign go ahead we're all going to laugh at you and we think that's a waste of taxpayer dollars but as long as you're not going to enforce are draconian federal laws and you allow states to continue to legalize marijuana medically and recreationally, I think that's fine, you're not going to piss off as many people. So this is good news in the end. The Republican Party is quickly beginning to realize that governing requires more than just talking out your ass, and while I find them an effective opposition party that obstructed Obama from implementing even the most moderate parts of his agenda, well, they're beginning to realize that governing is a lot harder than it looks. And now that they're in control of all three branches of government, the spotlight's on them, so if people are dissatisfied with government, they know who to blame. But even though they want the power, they don't want any of the accountability and the scrutiny that comes along with it. So, case in point, Senator Lisa Murkowski was asked a really simple question by a journalist, uh, and she literally got up in his face and scolded him like a child. I'm not joking about
2: this. Can you support the House health care bill hey, at this moment? Would you give me a Sorry. minute to get to my constituents, Sorry. please? Is this a yes or no, do you support the House health care bill? Would you please be respectful? I've been sitting there in a tent for two hours. Come on.
0: Wow. (laughs) Lisa, you do know that in the time it took you to stop, turn around and backtrack and then get in that reporter's face, you could have just spent less time answering the question because it was a pretty straightforward uh, question, if you ask me but instead you decided to waste more time being condescending and talking down to that reporter like he was a kid rather than just saying yes or no you decided to embarrass yourself i don't get it but i mean lisa murkowski isn't the only republican who is deciding to throw a temper tantrum in public so representative joe barton of texas decided to get lippy with his constituents and it was great to watch because even though he embarrassed himself they quickly put him in his place
8: now given your voting record opposing legislation protecting women from violence, will you make a commitment to us today, make a promise that you will reach out to Congresswoman Jackie Speer and work with her to see this bill successfully through
4: Congress?
9: States.
4: No,
7: it's violence against women. That's a national issue.
9: Right. That That's is an
7: issue states. that impacts everyone, everywhere. Not only not in this country, but everywhere. Civil rights.
4: State of Texas. You, you represent Texas
7: first. You shut up.
1: What, what is that? What,
7: what is that? You
2: don't tell anybody to shut up. This is this. You work for us. First. You shut up.
0: What the hell did you just say? He's against violence against women bills because that's a state issue, not a federal issue. Okay, that's a cop-out, because in other words, what you're really saying is, you know, I don't care enough about violence against women, so I'm going to delegate that responsibility to the states, and if we are dealing with a state that doesn't want to protect women from violence, then, you know, I'm sorry, they're just going to have to petition their local government. What's his moral barometer?
4: Where is it It's nowhere.
0: Why are you part of the federal government if you don't think that it has any responsibility in regulating the states? I mean, have you not heard of the Supremacy Clause? Violence against women, to to say that this is a state's rights issue, that's completely idiotic. And someone said correctly so that civil rights don't go to the states. It's not a state's issue. Civil rights are guaranteed. And I think that protecting women from violence is something that the federal government should take an interest in. But the fact that he decided to say, you know, this is just the state's rights issue, it was embarrassing. Now, he literally told someone to shut up. That was the most (laughs) crazy part of this video. He said, you, sir, shut up. Really, and then the response is, uh, "You don't tell anyone to shut up. You work for us," and that was great. And I tried to look for the rest of the video, if there is, you know, a second part to that, where we can see the backlash and just the aftermath beyond, you know, that short couple of seconds. But I couldn't find it. But wow, he's telling his constituents who pay for his salary through their tax dollars to shut up because he refuses to address violence against women. If there is an easily winnable issue. It's violence against women. How many people in the country are actually in favor of violence for women? (laughs) I mean, I can't find anybody. But apparently this guy, I mean, if you don't want to address violence against women, then apparently you're complicit in it. And then you get pissy when people call you out. Makes no sense to me. This makes absolutely zero sense. This is a winnable issue. You can look like a hero if you support preventing violence against women, but you won't even do that unbelievable but you know you talk about states rights i'm sure you would vote against gay marriage i'm sure you would vote against marijuana legalization so you're not consistent on states rights you're a you're a cherry picker you support states rights when it benefits you uh and you reject the idea of states rights if you think that you know uh, a woman wants to have an abortion you don't think that she should be allowed to uh have that autonomy for herself you think the federal government needs to intrude upon that right so i mean these republicans are consistently proving to be cowards and now they've just resorted to throwing temper tantrums in public i mean do you not realize that you guys have been governing governing now for what like three months and you're looking horrible you have no clue what you're doing so i mean like i said they're a great opposition party they can obstruct presidents from doing what they want to do and carrying out their agenda but when it comes to governing they are completely clueless and quite frankly i'm really enjoying watching this Rachel Maddow, as you all know by now, has been the laughingstock of the country among both the right and the left because she overhyped a story that went absolutely nowhere. Now, I used to respect Rachel Maddow, but she is one of the many people that fell from grace after she revealed that she was just a propagandist for the Democratic Party in 2016. Now, she tweeted out that we've got Trump tax returns seriously. Now, when you read that tweet, I mean, certainly when I read the tweet, there was this implication that she was able to obtain his more recent tax returns, which are important, so that way we can know more specifically about his business dealings. However, you know, 9 <laughs> nine p.m. rolled around, and, you know, she began to talk about how it's really important that we see what's in President's tax returns, and she just dragged it on and dragged it on, and she even had a cliffhanger where she left us on a commercial break and said, you know, we'll reveal them when we come back. So, she overhyped this way too much, and finally, when she got to the tax returns, she revealed absolutely nothing.
6: What I have here uh, is a copy of Donald Trump's tax returns. We have his federal tax return for one year, for 2005. I believe this is the only set of the president's federal taxes that reporters have ever gotten a hold of. Uh, What we have are these two pages, front and back, from the same 1040 form that you might have filled out when you file your taxes. Um, And in terms of what's on here, let me give you the basics. Um, Aside from the numbers being large, uh, these pages are straightforward. He paid uh, $38 million, looks like $38 million in taxes. Uh, He took a big write-down of $103 million, more on that later. Uh, If you add up the lines for income, he made more than $150 million in that year. Mazel tov. Uh, We got these pages We got this document today from a Pulitzer Prize winning investigative journalist who's better on financial matters than almost anybody else in the business. His name is David K. Johnston. Uh, These pages turned up the other day in his mailbox. David will join us live here in just a moment. Um, But because nobody has had the president's taxes before, we didn't know what to expect. Um, when we showed this 2005 return to the White House to ask him if it's real, uh, we sent this over to the White House tonight, and the White House responded basically with, yep.
0: Yep. Nope. Okay. Well, that wasn't what you made it out to be, Rachel. Did you honestly think that we would be excited, or as excited as you had anticipated, for his 12-year-old tax returns? Really? That don't reveal anything? And now there's a substantial portion of people that believe that Donald Trump himself planted these tax returns so that way uh, he would give it to someone that would give it to a journalist because this makes him look good. Because for someone that made $150 million, I don't think that a 25% tax rate is fair. But I mean, there's no real bombshells in these tax returns. There's no information about his business dealings. And it's 12 years old, Rachel. Nope. So what you did was you allowed Donald Trump to brag about this because he paid more in taxes than Mitt Romney. He paid more in taxes than Bernie Sanders even. And he should pay more in taxes than someone like Bernie Sanders because he makes more money than Bernie Sanders. But this percentage, even though it's still too low, it's not as bad as other politicians. So you built this up as though you were going to reveal something that showed his corruption or showed that he was evading his taxes when you revealed the complete opposite. You helped Donald Trump Rachel what I thought initially was that she learned about sensationalism the hard way because everyone was mocking her you had late night hosts like Stephen Colbert mocking her And the whole country on Twitter, you know, just mocking her relentlessly. However, it seems as though Rachel Maddow is the one that's going to be getting the last laugh because as Mediaite puts it, the most remarkable part of this story may be the ratings generated in an hour of cable primetime focusing exclusively on taxes. Rachel Maddow just trolled all of us for ratings. Nope. You helped him. He looks good now because of this. So this, I think, will... Assuage any speculation that we have now about his more recent tax returns when I still want to see his more recent tax returns. I want to know about the potential conflicts of interest. Uh, and how he does his business dealings because that will tell me about his way of governing and whether or not he's going to show favor to these countries that he has business dealings in. So, I mean, this this is so frustrating. This isn't what we wanted, obviously. The point of seeing the tax returns was to get to the bottom of whether or not he's doing anything bad and whether or not he's paying his taxes. But what you revealed was nothing, Rachel. So this is such an embarrassment. But I mean, like I said, at the end of the day, even though she was mocked, that ratings boost is probably going to lead to her getting a big check from msnbc so i mean she's the one who's really getting the last laugh at the end of the day because sensationalism sells unfortunately uh and her doing this uh, even though it led to her decline in credibility potentially you know i i think that msnbc probably liked it and we're probably going to see them encourage more of this type of behavior from their host so you know <laughs> this is just such a stupid debacle nope so, I often talk about how the Democratic Party is really unpopular right now because they lost the White House, they lost the Senate, they lost the House. Uh, they don't hold a majority of state legislatures and governorships. They're just extremely unpopular right now. Uh, but a new poll released by Suffolk University really shows and quantifies just how unpopular they are. So, when you look at the numbers here and their favorable, unfavorable ratings, Well, we have Pence sitting at a 47% favorable and 35% unfavorable rating, Trump at 45% favorable, GOP at 37% favorable, as well as media sitting at 37%. Now, when you look at the Democratic Party's favorable and unfavorable ratings, well, they are sitting at a 36% favorable rating with a 52% unfavorable rating, and it gets worse. Hillary Clinton specifically is sitting at a 35% favorable rating and a 55% unfavorable rating. Hillary Clinton has a higher unfavorable rating than Congress. So how is it that someone who has no political power right now, Hillary Clinton, is even less favorable than the person who she lost to, who at one point in time was the most unfavorable presidential candidate in American history? How can you be more unfavorable than the person you lost to. It doesn't make sense, right? Well, I'll tell you how that's the case. The Democratic Party does not realize that they are not just unpopular because... They have no core message to communicate to voters, but they actually fucked over their own base and they refused to admit it. So as they have yet to apologize for rigging the primary against Bernie Sanders, they are not even acknowledging that they did that. That's why they're so hated and unpopular on top of the fact that they have no core message and they're an ineffective opposition party. They have no idea how to challenge Trump and the Republicans. They consistently focus on how he's unhinged or how he has you know, a bad temperament or how he's a Kremlin shill, and that's not something that will get your voters back that you lost to Donald Trump. That's just not going to work for you. You need a core message to communicate to voters, and you've got nothing. Now, I want to share something that Sean King wrote about their unfavorability ratings. He thinks that Democrats' response to this poll will be this. He says, my gut tells me that Democrats will ignore this poll or blame it on bad polling and continue down the same course they are currently on, being funded by lobbyists and the 1%, straddling the fence or outright ignoring many of most inspirational issues of the time, and blaming Bernie Sanders for why they aren't in power right now. He also states, when good people who are frustrated with the Democratic Party express their genuine concerns, I see them being told to shut up and unify. Now is not the time for public complaints, they are told. We must all work together. But what this apparently means to the people who are calling for unity is getting behind the corporate suit-and-tie lobbyist-driven agenda of the establishment. But let me break it to you. The establishment has almost no grassroots momentum. Virtually every progressive grassroots movement in America right now is fueled by people outside of the Democratic Party establishment, and this is a huge reason why the party is so outrageously unpopular. That's exactly it. And I still receive criticism. I saw a tweet today that, you know, if I'm so disenchanted with the policies of Republicans and if I dislike Donald Trump so much, why do I continue to criticize Democrats every single day? Well, look, I'll tell you, it's not that I'm attacking Democrats because I'm being malicious. I'm trying to be constructive and tell them to get their shit together because if Democrats had their act together to begin with, the Republican Party wouldn't have any power. Uh, Trump wouldn't be elected in office right now, but because they decided to shun the base and refuse to listen, that's why Republicans are in power. So, you can't just say, oh, well, you know, the Democratic Party, even though they're better than Republicans, marginally so, you can't can't attack them. You can't criticize them. We have to unite. We have to attack Republicans because they're the real enemy. No, if Democrats had their act together, then we wouldn't have Republicans in control of everything right now. So we have to. It is incumbent upon progressives to consistently call out Democrats and their refusal to actually listen to voters because they are the reason why we're in this political predicament today. For a party as extreme and unpopular as Republicans, for a party that's just off the political spectrum, they are akin to the right-wing extremist parties in Europe, they should never, ever win. But the fact that the Democrats can't even compete against the party as Shitty as Republicans shows that they're really in a horrible position. And people are slowly but surely waking up to the fact that we are in an abusive relationship with the Democratic Party. They wanna to continue to use us and abuse us and they count on our votes, but yet they don't wanna give us anything. And when we tell them we'll vote third party, they say, Well, oh really? Are you gonna to go to third party? That's not gonna work for you because they'll they'll never win. But still, people deserve options. And we're still, those of you who voted for Jill Stein, uh, you are still being shamed by members of the Democratic establishment and you're being blamed for Trump. Well, I've got news for you. There was a third party candidate that also took votes away from Trump. And Gary Johnson took more votes away from Donald Trump than Jill Stein took votes away from Hillary Clinton. And... In spite of that handicap, she still lost. She's just unpopular. Democrats are unpopular because you offer us nothing. You shun your base. You fuck over the base. And the reason why you're more unpopular than Republicans is because you facilitated the electoral victories of Republicans across the country. So please, spare me the outrage. When progressives criticize Democrats and Hillary Clinton, spare me. We don't want to hear the bullshit. We deserve to be compensated in some way, politically, monetarily, for what you did to us and the fact that you are... The fact that you have the gall to tell us to unite now between, be, behind your corporatism, it's not happening. So that's why the Democratic Party is so unpopular. It It's honestly not surprising to me right now. It's not. Because you guys, you are holding your own constituents uh, in contempt. Like, we, we feel as though you not just don't care about us, but you actually hate us, That's not good, and even though I'm not a Democrat anymore, I'm still a constituent, I'm a liberal voter, I'm a potential voter of the Democratic Party, so they should be inclined to listen to what I have to say, but they don't give a damn, and this is why we have to form a third party or move towards building up the Green Party, because Democrats, they're unpopular for a reason. They're not with the American people, and the American people know that they're not with us. I received a couple of voicemails from viewers who are offering some constructive criticism of the show. So the first one here is from Charlie. So let's hear what he has to say.
8: I'm a progressive and independent voter. I certainly oppose Trump and his campaign and think it is a tragedy. I understand that Hillary was voted for by many because they didn't want the same corruption. The situation now is extreme. I've listened to your broadcasts on YouTube and I have a suggestion, period. I would suggest very strongly that you stop using phrases like party of death. I absolutely agree about the corruption and the political scene, especially the Republican Party. Not that the Democrats are angels, but I think you're going to drive people off by using these extreme terms.
0: So, first of all, thank you so much for the message because I think that what you are saying, I think there's some truth to it. Uh, So I do agree with you, but I do think there's a caveat. So, if I do say terms like Republicans are the party of death, I don't think I'm going to convince any conservative to come on to my side because that type of rhetoric, it, it is seemingly bombastic. But the caveat is that I'm not saying that Republicans are the party of death, to be hyperbolic, I'm saying it because I think it's literally true. I mean, when you think about how the Congressional Budget Office found out that under their new healthcare proposal, 52 million people would be uninsured, when you see how they continuously beat the war drums, they started the Iraq War, which led to the death of 100,000 people At a minimum, I mean, that's a conservative estimate. It was probably upwards of a half a million, but at a minimum, they killed a 100,000 people because of their unnecessary war, because they lied about Iraq having weapons of mass destruction. But on the other hand, I totally agree with your point. I think it's not going to be conducive to me making any allies among the right of people who I could convert. And I've had some people reach out to me who said, look, I was a conservative. I voted Republican my whole life, but you got me to be progressive But I think that number is going to be a lot smaller if I continue to call Republicans the party of death, even if I do believe it's true. So, you know, thanks for the feedback. I think that you have a point here. So I'll definitely take that into consideration. Honestly, I can't promise that I'm not going to call them the party of death because they do piss me off quite a lot sometimes. But, you know, I'll keep your criticism uh, at the back of my mind because I think that there's some truth to it. So this other message is from Ross. So let's hear what he has to say.
4: Where do you even start? Uh, I like you. Uh, I need more progressive voices, but just please stop with the backbiting
7: If people are on your team, they're not like agreeing with one hundred percent of the things you say doesn't mean that you should attack them.
0: Thanks
8: a lot. See you later.
0: Thank you so much, Ross, for the message so um, you know, I don't necessarily know what you mean by uh saying that I'm backbiting because when you say that someone is backbiting. I think that you are implying that there's malicious intent, but I'm not being, I'm not trying to be malicious, I don't know if it appears that way or not, but I'm not trying to be malicious, I'm trying to be constructive of my criticism of Democrats, even though sometimes I call them idiots and dumbasses, my whole overarching goal is to educate them on why they're wrong. So, I would like to know what you mean by me uh, backbiting, specifically I mean are you averse to the idea of me criticizing corporate Democrats like Cory Booker because I think that if we don't criticize people like Cory Booker, for example, then we're going to get screwed over. And I think that it's important that we do call out Democrats as well as Republicans because we saw what happened. I mean, when Republicans took office on their first day of this recent uh, congressional session, they tried to repeal an ethics watchdog or basically gut an an ethics watchdog. Uh, And when we flooded their offices with phone calls, they immediately reversed course. When Cory Booker decided to vote against the bill that would have allowed for the importation of prescription drugs from Canada— He reversed course once he got backlash, so I think that, you know, what you refer to as backbiting, uh, I think that you're alluding to the fact that I should probably stop criticizing people who don't agree with me on 100% of the issues, but I acknowledge that I'm not going to agree with people on 100% of the issues, and I can still make allies with those people. However, with that being said, I do think it's important to call people out when they're wrong. For example, if I agree with someone on 99.9% of the issues, uh, and on just that one issue— Uh, I disagree with them. Single-payer healthcare. I think that I can legitimately critique that person because there are some issues to me that I feel as though they're just non-negotiable. If you're not in favor of single-payer, then you're in favor of some people not having insurance, and that will lead to people dying or going bankrupt if they get sick, and I just don't think that that's something that I'm willing to yield an inch on at all. I mean, if you are in favor of wars, I I, I just can't see how I can uh, can be with you on that. If you think that we shouldn't get money out of politics, if you think that transparency is the end-all be-all to money in politics— I can't agree with you. So, there's nuance to the world. Just because I criticize someone doesn't mean I I hate them. I mean, I could acknowledge that Cory Booker, even though he's a loathsome Democrat, he's still better than Jeff Sessions, who's just a racist. So, I mean, there's nuance to the world, and criticizing these people doesn't imply that I support Republicans more than Democrats. But I think that you have to have a two-pronged approach in this day and age. You've got to hold Trump and the Republicans accountable. You have to, because Democrats are not an effective opposition party, but on the other side of the coin here, you've got to hold Democrats accountable. You've got to critique them because if you don't, they're going to continue to think that they're doing everything right uh, and we will continue to have the same Republican-controlled Congress and White House and state legislatures and uh, governorships for a while. So, you know, I I definitely uh, will take what you're saying into consideration about me being more harsh on my criticism maybe, but, you know, I think that Uh, I would find a follow-up voice message helpful, Ross. So, thank you, though. Thank you to both of you. I'm definitely inclined to hear out any criticism, and I think that both of these gentlemen are saying, uh, you know, they have some truth, and I I, I do find this helpful. So, thank you so much for the voice messages. If you'd like to leave me a message, you could visit humanistreport.com. I don't always get to listen to all of them because I get a lot, uh, but, you know, feel free. Well, that's all I got for you guys today. If you made it this far in the episode, thank you so much for tuning in. I want to send a special thank you to all of the Patreon patrons, the members, anyone who donates to us via PayPal. You guys help the show not just survive, but also to thrive and expand. So I want to thank you guys so much for what you do for us and also even if you can't afford to help the show monetarily you still make a big difference when you like our videos when you share our videos because that improves the chances that we will show up in youtube search results it really helps us with their algorithm so thank you all so much you do this and spread the word uh we are reaching a hundred thousand subscribers and you can help us get there by sharing our videos and just telling people about the podcast so look thank you all so much for tuning in Uh, i want to send a special shout out to my nephew caleb happy birthday, buddy. Uh, And yeah, I hope you enjoy the show. I'll see you all next week. Take care.